0: Hello, and welcome back to the Robot Brains Podcast, Episode 7. During the past few episodes, we've covered a lot of ground learning about how AI is enabling new kinds of robots to come into our world, from hospital helpers, to drones that deliver medical supplies in Africa, to driverless cars. But we haven't yet talked about where commercialization of robots actually started. Robots in factories, robots that can build cars, electronics, and so forth. In this episode, we are going to discuss exactly those robots, the history of robotic automation and how AI is starting to really change where robotic automation is headed. To discuss all this and more, I'm honored to be joined by Mark Segura. Mark is Group Senior Vice President, Managing Director of Consumer Segments and Service Robotics at ABB. ABB has been one of the largest producers and installers of robots around the world for decades, and Mark has been leading the charge on many of ABB's efforts for over 20 years now. Mark, welcome to the Robot Brains podcast. Hi, Peter. Pleasure to be here. It's really nice to see you again. Um, of course, we know each other from Covariant ABB collaborations, and it's really nice to get to catch up here. As a first thing to set a little bit of context for our audience, could you maybe say a little bit about what is ABB? How big is it? What does it do? Well,
1: ABB is... a technology and engineering company. It is uh, the outcome of uh, the merger in uh, 1989 in nine of uh, two companies that one was ASEA from Sweden and the other one was Brombabri from Switzerland, They come both from late 19th century, so more than 100 years at the time of the merging. They were really developing um, electromechanics at the beginning. So they were starting with electrical motors, which we still do today. There was a large part on power generation and transmission and distribution that you know we spin off or we sold a couple of years ago. And throughout the century, we really were always striving to, based on electricity, I would say, develop the next new thing. Again, we put traction on on trains, we put electric propulsion in big ships, we we created the first computer-controlled electromechanic robot, and so on and so forth. So ABB today is a 30 billion plus company with a presence in more than 150 countries with uh, more than 110,000 employees, and that is uh, working in four business areas. Electrification, process industries, motion and robotics.
0: Wow. And that's quite uh, the history there. And of course, for me, the thing I've seen most from ABB is, is the robotics side of things, which is also the division you, you are in, right? Can you say something about how many ABB robots are in the world right now?
1: Well, ABB has uh, delivered more than half a million robots in the, in its history. Okay. And uh, we believe because that's difficult to track. I mean, robot lifecycle in our case span. From 12 to 15 years on average, but we have robots that have been working tiredly for 30 years. So our good estimation is probably that there's really well beyond 150, close to 200,000 robots working out there still today.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And so when you think about these robots out there doing things, what are they doing? (laughs) Well... What our robots
1: do, what the history of robots shown that the robots can do. We have lots of robots in automotive, okay? I mean, that's where uh, robotic industrial robotics started. If you take a car process, we're all the way to the process. We start with the metal sheet that uh, we are taking from stacks and feeding press lines. And the presses stamp the the parts and we transfer them and then they move to the body shop. In the body shop, we put them together and we weld them with uh, spot welding, laser welding, all kinds of joining technologies. Then they go into the paint, okay? So you, you paint the body and then you have a painted body. And then comes the marriage. So you have the powertrain and the body and you put them together and then you have kind of a car that you can start doing the final assembly and trim. So you put the dashboard, you put the seats, you put the wheels and here you go, you got a car. So that's where most of uh, the robots from us and from the, the industry in general were developing 80s and 90s. But then after 2000, Really, robotics expanded in many areas. You can talk about food and beverage for peak pack and pellet ice. later into the century. Big development in electronics. So we have lots of robots grinding and polishing uh, mobile phones, assembling the electronics. And in the latest part, of course, we are developing logistics. And now, as we'll talk, we have robots in restaurants and robots in hospitals. And the wow. story just begins.
0: So, Mark, this is so intriguing because when you talk about these these robots, a lot of people, when, when they think about robots, the first thing comes to mind is, is naturally a, a home robot, a robot that can, can help you at home. We haven't really seen many of those. I mean, there are Roombas and so forth, but we haven't seen the kind of more general home robot that really does kind of everything, right? But then even though we haven't seen them in our homes, you're saying the ABB robots are affecting our everyday lives all the time because they're building our cars, our electronics, and handling food, that's amazing.
1: I mean, I would say more and more robots are behind the productivity development that is uh, enabling higher wealth in the world. So if you think how much a car costs and the feature that the car has, uh, how can you, will be able to, in a sustainable way, get e-commerce happening, or how can you get fresh food prepared in a sustainable way and in a business sustainable way? Robotics is behind many of these developments. So the robotics is enabling... Every time more and more and more productivity gains that are translated in a number of benefits for society.
0: Now, one thing that I think a lot of people know about is Boston Dynamics, right? That, that's kind of the, the robotics company that, gets a, a lot of eyeballs when, when they release videos. And uh, I'm sure you've seen those Absolutely, it's amazing. Yeah, but, but the ABB robots actually uh, look very different, right? And there's many more of them for that matter, and they're working hard behind the scenes. But can you maybe describe the difference between, you know, what does a Boston Dynamics robot look like, what people are yeah. used to, and then in contrast, what does a typical yeah. ABB robot look like?
1: The industrial robots uh, that are mostly used are in M3- three different type of uh, what we call kinematics. So how you assemble the different links that compose the mechanical part of the robot. The biggest part of uh, robots in, in industrial use are what we call serial kinematic robots. So basically you have a number of joints and links that are mounted one on top of the other. So you have a first axis that rotates attached to the floor. On top of that, you mount another axis that pivots against the first axis, and normally up to six axes, and basically that has kind of the the shape of of an arm. So that's why we call it robotic arms. Then there are other variants, like... uh, Some people call it the spider robots, which are parallel kinematic Mm -hmm. robots that move very fast and they look, yes, can look like a spider. And then you have the scatter robots, which yet another way of mounting the axis. So these are the typical configurations and they are like this because one of the basic things on robots is reach and payload. I mean, that may Mm -hmm. sound like a boring thing, but when you go into industrial things, I mean, how much the robot can handle and how far it can reach is one of the basic things. So to optimize that is leading to this kinematic choices.
0: So they give some perspective here, right? I mean, the ABB arms are, are, are arms, the robots. They're not full bodies like a Boston Dynamics robot. But as you said, they have a spread of reach and, and strength. Can you say a little bit about how strong are the strongest ABB? Oh, yeah.
1: Arms? So that's super interesting because, I mean... We have robots like Yumi. By the way, Yumi is a dual-arm robot uh, many people have seen is the more, let's say, egg-catching robot that we have because it, it has kind of a human torso and two arms. A- and that can lift as little as half a kilo. So it's, it's a pretty low-payload robot because it is designed to assemble chips into into electronic boards and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the robots that are carrying these spot-welding things. They carry some uh, few hundred kilos but then we have our larger robot 8700 which is a titan of four meters high which can carry one ton and one can ton. basically lift a car or lift a, yeah a complete a stack of pallets stuff like that
0: wow so that robot it lifts a car no problem is what you're saying just on its own yeah absolutely it's used as an elevator sometimes wow that's that's amazing and then On on the other end of the spectrum, you you have the Yumi, but you also have these spider robots you you just mentioned. And I'm also really intrigued by those because, as I understand, they can go really, really fast. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, these are the the Delta robots, spider robots, parallel kinematic robots. The beauty of those robots is that, as I said, in the serial robots, every axis is mounted on the previous one. So you imagine the inertia that the first axis has to move all the rest. So this makes them with le- less acceleration. But if you want to go super fast, and these uh, are the videos where we are picking cookies and putting them into the blisters or into the boxes, uh, you have a robot where it is mounted in a way that every axis is independent, is parallel. So you have very low inertia, you can go very fast. And uh, these robots are, are hitting rates where you can make half a second cycle time. Can you imagine? You cannot even see it. So half every second, it picks and plays two Parts.
0: Now, I'm imagining, I, I'm just trying to do the math in my head here, like two per second, like, yeah. that's like 120 per minute, 7,200 yeah. per hour. Well, if anybody wants to eat cookies very fast, this robot can, can keep up, I guess.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: wow. These robots, they're in so many places all over the world helping out. And you yourself actually have spent a lot of time, as I understand it, to go out and install these robots, design new installations, figure out what's the right robot and so forth. You've been deploying robots all over the world. Um, I'm curious about about some stories there. What are some of the most memorable robot installations you've done?
1: There's really, really nice memories at the beginning of my career, when I graduated with engineering out of the university, I immediately joined ABB. And I'll tell you a story how, because it seemed like it was a destiny that I would end up here. But I mean, I I went into ABB in, in July. I was told, okay, here you have the flight tickets. Our robots are the orange ones. At that time, they were orange, by the way. I spent the first three years in installations. So in places like Fort in Melbourne, in Australia. In, uh, in Renault in, in Spain, in car factories. And then I was a long time in General Motors in, in Mexico, setting up the new factory in Silao. So, I mean, robotics was very different at the time, although we're talking 98. So, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's the infancy of robotics, but still in many of these factories, robots were, I mean, a low percentage. There was still a lot of manual things. I remember very well the startups because some of these projects were summer shutdown. So while you were doing installation, there was no one in and they would came in the 30th of August at uh, five o'clock in the morning to start the shift at six. And there was a lot of people around you, basically looking at you, sticking to the fencing, Okay. And you had all the pressure to just push the button and uh, feel like everything would start to move, the robots, the machines, and the parts starting to flow through the lines. And that was really exciting because it was a feeling of novelty. It was a feeling that of, of wow, this is something new. Over time, this, has, this feeling has, is a bit gone. There's still the emotion of starting up an industrial system with all the complexity and risk that it carries. But at those years, it was a lot of, of the novelty, Okay. In places like Iran, in places like in Turkey, uh, it was uh, some of the first robots we were installing those years. So, I mean, people was really, really excited about it.
0: That does sound really, really fun. Now, as you said, you, you stand there, you've got to press the button, it's got to get going, because can you say a little bit maybe about what a car manufacturing line tends to look like? and and then how you go about thinking through the robots that go into this? Well, the first thing
1: you must know about automotive industry is this a, a very advanced industry in terms of operational efficiency and optimization, okay? So if we can get the cars at the price that we get the car, it's because this industry has been decades improving quality system, improving optimizations, everything is born then, Six Sigma, Lean, all that comes out of automotive. So They're very good at that. And what that means is that the expectations in terms of reliability to begin with are very high. The contracts today are signed with 98, 99% reliability commitments with strong penalties. So this means that the design of the robot and the system around it has to be extremely robust, extremely. The robots work 24-7. So I would say... Again, this is not the most sexy thing, but there's a lot of science and engineering gone into making those robots so reliable that they would never fail. They can work 24 seven for 10 years with some planned maintenance and they're doing and doing and doing the cycles. So that's a very big consideration when you think about industrial robotics. Uh, the second one is, is performance and throughput. The payback of the robots in this industry is about the productivity gains, how much cars per hour you commit. So, optimization of motion and optimization of speed is the other big thing so the robots have to be reliable and the robots have to be as fast and as accurate as possible and that again has driven a lot of technology development in controls and so on and so forth but this is really really high demanding that then of course when you go into other industries you find other challenges but at least these are already at the highest level i would say
0: Now, when you think about these things, it's kind of intriguing, right? Because you're saying there are big penalties. Like, what does that mean, big penalty? It sounds like if a robot stops for for a few minutes, that's real trouble, right? It is
1: real trouble because, I mean, every second the line is a stop is less cars produced. And that has, of course, an economical impact. I mean, this is true for most of the manufacturers. But what happens in automotive or has happened so far, when it comes to the core processes, everything is one line. So you don't have parallel possibilities. If you stop the line, you stop the factory. That's always what they tell you. You're going to stop the. You don't want to stop the factory. And stopping the factory, of course, is not what you lose in that station, is the whole thing. So the typical contracts in automotive foresee indirect and consequential damages, meaning that everything that we're losing because of you, you need to pay us. That is the contractual setup. Luckily, things never end up uh, or almost ever end up that way because, of course, there is a collaborative approach. But this is really to set the framework or how serious things are. this industry
0: so i gotta imagine here here you are you effectively just graduated from college you in july right after graduation you start working abb you start traveling the world installing these things but you barely graduated and people are telling you if your installation comes to a stop (laughs) this is the penalty the first one was in renault okay it was a
1: summer shutdown and um we were really late i can tell you i mean When I look back, I mean, we were a bit brave by then. In general, things were a bit less professional. I mean, the robotics industry, how you were doing projects, it was was kind of developing. So we were very tight. And the the Renault plan manager came down to the shop floor, okay? And uh, he said he came, it was a two meters tall guy, okay, dressed in in a suit. I mean you're really fucked up. Sorry for the language. But I mean, he told me that. And I was looking up to him and said, <laughs> with my teach pen on my hand, I'll do my best, man. But I mean, <laughs> I know what's, what's the implication. So that guy today, uh, Jose Vicente los Mozos, is the head of Renault operations. So he was there. Now he's the, he oversees the whole Renault factories in the world. Then later, I went to General Motors in uh, Mexico. And the project manager was a very fantastic person, Rick Carmona coming from gm uh, in north america and we had a big problem because it was a press shop. so there was several press lines and they stopped the largest one for us to put the robots and they sent the dice to a supplier to a tier one so while we were doing the job the tier one was stamping the parts for the to be assembled but one day they got a call from the tier one our press is about to break and there was no spare press in mexico the parts were so big it was the the suburban truck there was no other press in, in Mexico that could do the job. So then they called me at the hotel, four o'clock in the morning. You come here now. I drove to GM, said, you know, we ha- don't have a press. So you need to get that running. I had four weeks of window. They asked me to do it in four days. Okay. So I said, That's impossible. <laughs> so then he took the phone. He, uh, he called Detroit. Okay. Mark, we're going to fly the parts from Detroit and you're going to pay for that. So I said, okay, look, I was 25 and I said, can I call my boss? It's like the lawyer's call. So I said, and then I I couldn't call Spain because it was uh, still, uh, they were not in. So, I mean, uh, and in the end, we, again, through collaboration, because in reality, then everyone has to work with the same objectives. We had to hybrid. uh, So we put the robots, but we were operating with a button in manual, okay, in one station. And then you had people on the other one. So day and night, day and night. We were putting the robots one by one. But you need to imagine the picture. Every single part stamped at the body side that was coming out of the line, the people was running to the body shop. They would not even put it in containers. Can you imagine the stress? Mm -hmm. They were running to bring the part to the welding line, where normally you would put in a container, it would be in a warehouse, and in 24 hours normally, they would pick it. It was just real time. That was really, really real time or just-in-time production for three weeks till we managed to get stabilized. But
0: that was tough. That sounds like quite the adventure. As a just You were working there for just a couple of years, put being put in charge of so many responsibilities. Stakes are high in manufacturing every single time, it seems.
1: It's a lot of money, as you say, for a young engineer. Any of us that uh, goes into manufacturing robotics, all of us, we are facing that. And it's exciting because it's a great development. It's not only the technology. Of course, when you program the robots, the PLCs, the SCARAs, you wire up the relay, you learn a lot of things. But the moral thing is you learn about how manufacturing works and you learn about the people, people in, in tough situations and how working in teams is really the only solution. And that is a learning that really goes so deep into your heart in those stressful situations that you take it forever on the rest of your career.
0: Now, talking about taking things too hard and careers, out of college, you went straight to ABB. Was there anything before that maybe could have hinted that you might end up in, in robotics?
1: Yeah, as I told you, I mean, it was when I was in high school, I mean, a cousin of my mother was working in Nissan as a, the head of the dye section, And also my, my uncle owned a uh, die shop okay so I always was brought up in between presses and dies. And, and one day I asked the cousin of him hey could you sneak me in into Nissan I want to see a, a car factory because I heard there are robots I said yes we do have robots and I went there I mean I remember I imagined the, the sound of the boom boom and everything shaking as I was approaching and I saw those big machines and then I started seeing the the little robots compared to the machines although they're big moving the parts and say hey here they are And that day I knew I wanted to do that. Okay. And then I chose to do robotics in university and then I knew ABB was there. So I applied and they chose me. So I've only done one interview in my life. Wow. One
0: interview and success and ready to go. (laughs) That's amazing. Now, actually something a lot of people might not know. I think a lot of people know ABB, the story you mentioned, it's partially Swedish, partially Swiss in origins, but actually you're based in Spain. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Can you say a bit about the Spain office?
1: Yeah, I mean, ABB is truly global. So we're really, really strong in, in, in all countries. Our office in Spain, of course, it roots back to the start of automotive. The first robot sold was in 76, 1976. And the first robot in Spain was sold in 1979. So Spain is the second producer of cars in Europe. That's probably not much known, but I mean, Germany is the first one and Spain is the second. Lots of car factories here. So it, it was the same in terms of robot adoption. So we started to work with uh, Citroën, the French uh, brand, now part of uh, Stellantis. Our history was uh, in the 80s, very much in automotive OEMs because also the, the sub suppliers, the tier one, were very much developing. And uh, what happened there is that we were specializing in one application, in that case, in, in uh, metal forming and stamping. And we were given the responsibility to develop that globally. So, Because you cannot have all these application competence in every country because it's a lot of knowledge to build up welding or painting or press automation. And that's how ABB is still organized today. We have our local units who, let's say, cover the countries, support our customers. But when it comes to certain specialized domain where you want to provide the solution, we are doing that out of certain hubs of engineering. And in Spain now, today, it's a team of 300 people, roughly 100 millions with the with local business and a few of these, what we call them global solution centers, which have the responsibility. Press automation is still there, where I was brought up many years, but now we have, for example, a center for three divisions for metrology. So cameras mounted on robots that do inspect parts and so on, and some more stuff. So, uh, but for example, our biggest team is in China. In China, we have only 2,000 people working in robotics. And we have the full value chain. We have factory, R&D, products, engineering. So we really, really spread.
0: So Mark, when I look at your LinkedIn, yes, you started out of college, but I look at your LinkedIn, you're at ABB, did your one job interview ever, you got the job. But then within ABB, maybe they're not interviews, but you're like going up in some sense, the corporate ranks very quickly, year after year, after year, after year. And a few years ago, you're leading a, as I recall, a $300 million team. That's yeah. where your team is generated. You have hundreds of people working with you, maybe even more. And then you decide it's time to restart from scratch. Tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have been growing this uh, big business in Spain, three hundred, doubling the business in four years, Very, very successful. And and that was a broad business. I, I was managing motors, drive, power electronics, and robotics in Spain, which I never left robotics. I got a call from, from Zurich, from the global manager of robotics at the time. And he said, Mark, you know, I mean, with your feedback and everyone's feedback, we've, we know that we need to take the next step in robotics. If ABB is to lead uh, the next decade of robotics, we need to start now. And that was 2017 when we had this conversation. We need to start working towards next era of robotics, which we all think is going to be different and bigger. And that's what in robotics jargon is called service robotics. As we know, it's everything beyond a factory wall. It's called service robotics in a way. So they proposed me to leave my job and take on a start internal startup or corporate startup which had at that time, 15 people, an incubator for logistics to try to work with Amazon and, and this uh, DHL and so on in UK with the prospect also to invest in healthcare, which today we have now our center in Houston and another one in Shanghai and later on take on retail restaurants and all this. And I said, yes. Okay. And I said, yes, because I'm a passionate about robotics and about business and about learning. And I thought that I could learn a lot that I could help coin the next era of robotics, try to drive it in the right direction from a business perspective, but from, from a robotics perspective as well. And that that, that would be fun. So I, I took in the challenge. And now, of course, we've been four years in that journey.
0: I think that's pretty amazing to go from a many hundred person team to a 15 person team that's going to go into a completely new domain, service robotics. I, of course, I mean, personally, I'm very excited about service robotics. Of course, as, as you know, I think it's where it's effectively where AI starts becoming really important for robotics. because the environments are are less structured, and so it's it's a really interesting space to be in. But it's also a new space, and it's kind of <laughs> your revenues are probably not matched up with with the revenues of your previous team just yet. Uh, they are
1: exceeding it already.
0: Oh wow! So Mark, you've been in robotics for for a while, 20 plus years, uh, really exciting. That's not where robotics started, of course. It's Robotics is, is older than, than 20 years. Can you give us a little bit about the history of robotics.
1: Yeah, of course. Maybe the first thing is where, where the robot world come from. The, the robot world comes from the Czech language. And the concept of a robot as a machine that performs some tasks, that does some work, was first portrayed in, in a show, in a theater in Czech Republic, beginning of the 20th century, and it was called Universal Robots at Work, and actually robot means in Czech kind of work, okay? So there was people already dressed up in metallic kind of silver clothes, being instructed to perform some work. The definition of, of robot uh, from, if you want, ISO is, is a machine that is reprogrammable and repurposable. And these programmable machines that can do different tasks, they started already quite some time ago. And the first were not obviously microprocessor driven and electrical. They were hydraulic robots driven by uh, electro valves. But really, the the modern robots, as we know them, they started in the 70s where computer power was becoming more uh, compact and powerful, you could imagine to have six motors controlled by a small microprocessor. And that basically ha- ha- starts in, in, in the 70s. And uh, basically since then, of course, the power of robotics has gone hand in hand with computer power. And of course, then came the, that enabled vision and later on cloud and, and, and AI and so on. But that's that's a little bit uh, where the history comes from.
0: That's so interesting. Now, when when you say in the 70s is when the first kind of modern era electrical robots come about. Can you say a little bit, what what were those robots doing? Were they actually doing something or were they just in laboratories?
1: The first robot that ABB uh, produced was grinding pipes. You know, there was a a turning stone and they were putting the pipes and the uh, grinding, the uh, polishing them basically. So they were, uh, the first robots were doing material handling. They were picking objects and basically loading machines because that's pretty simple. But bear in mind that today, out of the old robots that are sold in industry, still 55% are doing either material handling or machine tending, picking one object, putting it somewhere else, taking it out. That's what the robots do. Still today, because that's something, I mean, where you didn't need a lot of additional, let's say, intelligence to automate the process. And then second to that, then came the big boom of spot welding. So in the 70s, you started like that. And then automotive saw that. They took the robots and basically they kidnapped them for 20 years. And all the efforts in the robotics industry was put into spot welding, into bone and wipe, optimizing the robots in terms of payload, speed, cost reduction, performance increase to weld and weld and weld. So for the most part of uh, 80s and then 90s, it was kind of a 50-50 split in between material handling robots and spot welding robots. And still other applications were rather small. That is not the picture. Today. However, material handling, machine tending still accounts for the health.
0: Now, Mark, when I think back in parallel to AI history, to your robotics history there, back then, AI wasn't that capable compared to today, obviously. So, what should we think about? Was there any kind of AI in those robots? Were they using cameras?
1: Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Of course, one of the things that defines robots is that they have input and output. And uh, those days, you barely had some digital inputs and outputs from limit switches, proxy sensors, stuff like that. You may have, some for some process, some analog sensor of temperature and pressure, so the robot could have some kind of PID loop in some more of an analog process. But very, very simple. Many of those installations would not even have a PLC. So you can imagine the number of IOs, the the, the complexity of the logic. They were basically starting with the really, really dull and dirty uh, things that were not safe and also the things that humans would not get the quality right. And you can imagine a welding shop with all the fumes and the sparks. That was really, really a very tough place, as well as paint shops and so on. So that's what really drove uh, it at the beginning. But definitely Note AI, everything had to be built around the limitations of the robot. And that was driven also the type of applications robot were applied.
0: Now, you talk service robotics, um, you hit upon a few things, and I'd love to talk about all of them separately. So you mentioned logistics, logistics, you mentioned medical you mentioned food. I'd love to start with logistics, because that's one where, where we intersect quite a bit, of course, in a partnership with, between Coverin and ABB. So yeah, can you say a little more? What, what got you attracted to logistics? What, why is that yeah. such an important thing?
1: First is that, I mean, it's so close to us as, as consumers, as person, we all buy online. We are, we're really living this digital revolution through the mobiles. We have everything at our fingertip. I said, from that standpoint, this is big. I mean, this is, one of the biggest things that at least in my life I will go through. So that must have an impact in robotics as well proportionally because if you start going back the value chain just when you get something how it was delivered what the order was prepared how it was manufactured how it was customized blah 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 you can just feel the impact. So That's what attracted me. But the biggest learning that we had the first two years in logistics, when we were just focusing on distribution centers or fulfillment centers for e-commerce, and that's why we reshaped our business line in ABB, is that because of this, the value chain of manufacturing, distribution, and retailing has totally changed forever. And it's become one single thing, okay? If you want to understand and win in this business of selling something to consumers, you need to, sorry, you need to understand the whole thing because everything is interconnected. Today, a brand like, I don't know, Procter & Gamble can sell directly to a consumer through a web, and they can bypass the 3PL and the retailer that was their only channel to market. Can you imagine the disruption? The same way around, if you're a brick and mortar and you have to compete with e-commerce, you need to figure out how you leverage your assets and your strengths. So this is, is a revolution, it's a holistic thing. No one knows really what the steady state will be because no one knows. I mean, what, what percentage of drive-through, what percentage of uh, in-store, how, what percentage of home delivery, and that will be different through geographies, by the way, but the, it's a very dynamic thing. Now, the thing is that all companies involved on this, they cannot stay idle. They need to invest. And they need to take risk and they need to bet on certain models on certain things. So this is making things on one hand very exciting from speed, investment and so on, but also very risky. And uh, we're, we're trying to yeah, balance out there how we help customers make sure they can really achieve both. I mean, be successful uh, managing the risk and the investment.
0: Now, let's think about this in, in, in terms of a concrete example. Let, let's say you deploy a, a robot in a logistics center, a warehouse. Can you say a little bit about what that robot might be doing? Yeah, if you go from inbound to
1: outbound, so the first thing you can imagine, trucks come in, they need to be unloaded, okay? Typically, this is done manually still today, although you've seen like Boston Dynamics showing some Some robots that will do that in the future will also do that in the future. But then the boxes, typically, they need to be depalletized and put away. So you have robots doing depalletizing and putting things away in a storage. Then as the order list comes, you need to retrieve that from store, okay? And need to break it down. And then if it's a fulfillment center, you need to build up a mixed pallet again to fulfill an order for a store. Mm -hmm. If it's an e-commerce, then we need to do item picking, which is what we do together with you in Kivariant so then later on you also need to sort the orders if it's e-commerce so you have the order but you need to put it into a place that it's going to send it to one city or another city this is called sortation so robots in palletizing depalletizing order picking sortation these are the core core things some of them do not require ai but the more massive and impactful one do require ai
0: We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. When you think about AI making its way into robotics, robotic automation specifically, right? It's gotta be a big change. For A B B, right? Because you're used to deterministic systems and where reliability is measured in a very kind of specific way that you're used to. Now you come into AI and you know, these are systems that use machine learning to make decisions. So, you know, h- how did you kind of change thinking about things and h- how do you you know go about reliability in those settings? This is one of the
1: challenges that I mean the whole industry will need to learn together and get to some new standards there are two things here. How do you assess performance? And how do you model then the business case? Because, I mean, when things are deterministic, everything is easy. I mean, you compare Excel to Excel, the performance, and you make the numbers because you're going to get this performance, and you're going to get this payback. When things are a bit more fluid, uh, how you do that? We thought a lot about it when we started. And, you know, the first thing we said is, how do you can really compare performance? And the only way to do that is to have a pattern. We created this speaking challenge where we put together a number of use cases that every AI would have to compete against the same pattern. So that's the only way we could compare. Now, this is something that we have well-established. By the way, we're thinking to utilize that for other AI-driven things like Hmm. 3D navigation of vehicles. How you would compare a 3D navigation is better than another. You need to create some tests. But now the challenge is that as we are having the first deployments together is with our customers, once again, How do we measure our commitment? They are used to to be given, okay, we're going to do so many picks per minute and that's it. We're going to do some picks per minute. There is a universe of SKUs that we know will work, but you and I know that you can get anything different tomorrow. So how are we going to deal with that? Once again, we're trying to create a, a framework which we can commit to and that we can be measured upon that the customers can effectively measure us against and we can have a commitment. But the tricky thing is that they know that in no case, no one will be able to secure them the complete picture because the picture is dynamic on their end and the picture is dynamic on our end as we learn. So this is really the last step. The end users need to understand their CapEx investment in a different way when it is an AI investment. And also looking at CapEx differently, probably looking more into an OPEX thing where you are continually evolving and here's where different subscription model weeks kick in. But this is a journey. People is not used to that because simply... Uh, machines and automation did not work like that when without AI.
0: Absolutely. And so one thing I remember from, from the competition that you organized, I mean, a, a lot of our listeners work in machine learning. This will ring home to them, but not everybody. Um, this notion of a of a test set, you actually sent us, well, somebody from ABB came by with many bins of objects full of objects. The robot is supposed to pick them one at a time, not leaving anything behind, never double picking and so forth. But I thought the really interesting thing was that for half of the bins, you didn't tell us ahead of time what's going to be in it. That's the machine learning a test set. It's something you cannot prepare for directly. You hope by preparing on other things, it'll generalize and still work. And it did in our case. But it's a very interesting concept, this kind of being tested on things that are not explicitly announced, which reflects the real world where things are always changing. And so I thought that was really, really interesting. And I'm curious if, if there's more things in that direction you've been thinking about and how you evaluate things.
1: Absolutely. In general, either be, I mean, any type of AI deep learning or deep reinforced learning. There are some things you're more sure you can do if you've trained and you've tested. But the reality is that if we use machine learning whatsoever, it's because we want to cope with some dynamic environment and structured environment. Otherwise, we will go back to some more traditional methods. So that is the, the need per se. So for, for item picking, we did it this way. But as I, I'm telling you right now, think about another use case, which is free navigation. So if an AGB has to move around a warehouse or a factory, yes, you can do some tests and you can test, oh my God, do you identify a pallet? Do you identify a column? Do you identify a person? But in reality, I mean, you're not supposed to see a dog in a factory. What, what happens if, if a dog crosses by? So th- the same principles of known pattern and a no, I think will be very important to, to, to check the robustness of any industrial application because ultimately the purpose of applying AI is to manage these type of situations.
0: I couldn't agree more. And, and it's part of what makes AI so exciting, right? This notion that it's capable of doing things that you didn't directly program into it, or at least it doesn't feel like you programmed it directly into it, yet it somehow still can perform the task in this new situation. This is going to
1: change the management of the company. because. When a manager manages their coworkers, of course, it's the same thing. The person, the employee is supposed to be trained on something, but ultimately, you don't know their exact performance, how it's going to be. So now AI robotics is, is just the tip of the iceberg. But imagine when factors will be 90% of the robots will work with AI and you add on all these, let's say, Percentages of different behaviors and you add the whole thing, it's gonna be a total management system because one robot is one thing. But when you're gonna have hundreds of robots, that's gonna be a total different thing.
0: Yeah, and that's gonna happen, right? I mean, it seems the it's, sure it, path forward. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely in the short term.
0: Now, Mark, when you think about these problems and how to deliver something to to a new warehouse, let's say, can you say a little bit about how do you think about the whole concept? Like how, how do you when you get asked to Deliver maybe an order picking station or a palletizing, depalletizing station. What's the process and you know, how do you go from just that beginning to delivering something?
1: The first thing is is really for everyone's sake to really find out what's if there's a business gain behind because it, it is too so there's a lot of hype of robotics. Many people just are told by the board hey, we need to put robots in. But the reality is also that that robots make sense when they make sense. Okay. So there are certain parameters where can be very various makes sense so the first thing is really sit down hey, before solving the problem with the robot what's your problem okay oh with this i mean why you want to put the robot? no it's your economy i mean people are breaking their backs, or i don't have people or there's a quality issue because the boxes are broken all right i mean then it makes sense how many you have how shift how many shifts you work and because that is really setting the trust that the time span for both will be good. And then we go into a process analysis. Okay, what are the number of SKUs? What are the number of order lines? What are the through output? And then we define the, the material flow. We define the layout. And we dimension the stations. Do we need two robot stations, three robot stations? As you go more in detail, then we go, okay, what type of SKUs? How is the end effector? How do you manage also exceptions? Because it, it, we also are very true. I mean... Today's technology has to work, I mean, requires to handle exceptions, okay? Because the variety of things that can happen in, in a warehouse for more that AI is now super advanced, it cannot cope with them. Sometimes it's not an AI limitation, it's, it's a mechatronic limitation, like the end effector and so on. So the, this is called the non-happy flows, okay? So what happens if this gets stuck? If, what happens if we cannot pick this? This also has to be taken care of. And we end up then with the test plan and, and then the
0: project plan. And now you go out, you have the plan, and you deploy, then you measure. What happens next?
1: Well, well uh, with AI now, what we're uh, doing together, of course, is that there is a training phase. For more that the brain is trained, it's always a benefit for all. Okay, if we can get a sample of your particular SKUs, we train the system in advance, this has proved to be a good investment. Now, that over time probably won't be needed. For certain segments, I mean, I mean, we're doing a lot in fashion right now. So we've seen together lots of uh, poly bags with trousers and T-shirts and belts and so on. It's still good to do it. At certain point in time, we won't need it anymore, okay? But then next day, we might be doing something in, in a pharmaceutical. And that's probably about the cuboid boxes. And yeah, maybe it's good to train for some time. At some point in time, any cuboid we can pick, the brain will know it. But I mean, the list is in imaginable. And if you end up in an Amazon type of center where the SKUs are 20 millions, then you really are, need to be in a frame. Okay, once that is done, then we need to do the test. And the test we are trying to do, as I said, against a pattern, okay? We said this pattern we can commit to, We test the pattern, and then we go into real life, which is basically anything. And then the anything there, there's this level of uncertainty that everyone needs to understand is going to go away with it, okay? But the learning is that if the commitment gets to a certain minimum, then the rest is a plus. And that's uh, luckily the, the good feedback we are, we're achieving right now.
0: Yeah, and that's been, that's been really exciting, of course, for, for both of us to, uh, to see that play out or play out more work on it to make yeah. it happen than just see yeah. it play out. I'm curious, as you think about these robots in, in warehouses, do you see a natural expansion from there to other domains? Yes,
1: I'll put you an example. Uh, now in China, we have commissioned uh, Heidi Lao, which is a very large restaurant company, a robotic restaurant for Hot Pot. Hot Pot, if you have eaten this Chinese food, is basically you get uh, you order different plates with raw meat, raw vegetables, and you have a boiling pot in your table, and you just cook it. So if you think about it, it's a logistic process because what the robots do is that the the portions of the dishes, so a dish with certain meat, certain quantity of mushrooms, that gets to the restaurant, and it needs to be stored in a cold room. And then when people is ordering, in this case already through an iPad, to pick an order means that you need to retrieve certain dishes and prepare an order. So it's really an order picking. So the reality is that we've implemented those robots that are doing exactly this, and we have reutilized the software for storage and retrieval that we use on our robotic systems in warehouse. It's exactly
0: the same. So are you saying that if I were to fly to China and I go to the right place, I wonder where it is, I I can eat at a restaurant where ABB robots are doing logistics behind the scene?
1: Yes. That's a restaurant in Beijing, and uh, we hope to do many more. And there's also noodle restaurants in Jiangsu, where with this is absolutely unmanned restaurant. There are two robots of us, which are preparing uh, the noodles that you want.
0: Wow. You order something, and then that order, the robot kicks into yeah. action.
1: Yeah, that, that is fantastic, because imagine you have your app, and you can, there are some preset recipes, but you can make your own secret recipe, okay? With a little bit of this spice, with uh, these minutes of boiling the the noodles, with this quantity mm. of vinegar, and that's your recipe. And the robots will execute it consistently over time, no matter in which restaurant of the world you are. But it's not only that, because it's even smarter. Because of course. You are sharing that data with the customer and then they apply AI, okay, and they look at your tastes and they can generate individualized campaigns. So you get a promotion on your phone, which is only for you because you like this uh, Sichuan sauce, you like this, hey, we're suggesting you this uh, recipe and so Mm -hmm. on. So, I mean, robots are enablers for truly digital business. That is an example in restaurants. But there are many others where robots it's not only the, the the physical thing they carry that they do but they bring digitalization to the whole process
0: you said that these robots are in china is there any reason that you think they're they're in china do you think that's the place they're going to largely be first or is it just coincidence and there will be no, many other no. places very soon
1: no i mean highest robot density as you know is in uh, if we talk density it's korea then it's uh, singapore and japan see, so adoption of robotics in asia is much faster and culturally different than in, in Europe and in U.S. Automation is not seen ever as a threat, but as, as a booster in many aspects. That's why adoption of robotics also in China, which is still, it is a still a low-cost country. China is the largest market in robotics already. Uh, it's 40% of the total global sales of robots going to China, and that's expected to continue wow. in the coming year.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. The thing that's been on my mind since the beginning of our conversation here is your reference to healthcare, robots in a medical center in Texas. I mean, who doesn't want better healthcare? I think everybody. So I'm very curious, what's going on there?
1: I'm super excited about too. I mean, for more that I love painting cars and that stuff, I mean, when I thought that robotics could really help people have better healthcare, that's super exciting. I mean, first thing, why we landed in Houston, it was not coincidence. We were really screening the world to look at the healthcare hubs in, in uh, London, Oxford, uh, Shanghai, Singapore, many great places, uh, of course, that are there. But the, what we found in Houston is really unique. I mean, the concentration of hospitals, academias, and the umbrella of the Texas Medical Center makes it a unique place. We started to uh, find, really understand what are the challenges in this industry. We found out that it's really a tsunami coming in. People doesn't talk mo- much about it, but especially in U.S., for example, is, is a big thing. So we have shortage of labor, shortage of talent. The processes likely are becoming more complex because we have lots of new treatments, but mostly personalized drugs. So the complexity is becoming very big. And then also we have a financial problem because population aging is putting a big strain because after 65, every year you live, you go three times more to the hospital every year. That's an impressive exponential. So if you put all that together, I can tell you the system is broken. It's unsustainable just five years from now. So what do we want to do? What do we think we can help? I mean, many people have seen and talks about the surgical robots, okay? We are not in that space, although it's fantastic, but this is really a medical thing. I mean, the, the robots are amplifying the surgeon in this case. It's not about automation. So we come from automation glasses, from industrial glasses, into these facilities to really try to understand how we can optimize and alleviate this operational challenges the lack of uh, skilled people so we can free up time for nurses doctors to do what they are best how do we reformulate the processes so they are more optimized because when you automate with robot glasses it's not only about what you do but you look around and you normally change the process to make it more efficient so with that we found out that there are two immediate areas where we are acting and one is of course the laboratories okay in the laboratories, you have repetitive tasks, non-added value tasks performed by highly scarce and qualified people. And you don't want that. But it's not only that. It's so much everything around the patient that uh, the process has not been optimized. I'll give you an example. The first project we've done in Houston is a very simple one at the, the largest pediatric hospital, Texas Children. The robot will be is loading and unloading blood samples from a centrifuge, which is the first pre-analytical process. You spin the the blood to separate uh, serum from plasma, and then you go into sugar analysis or different type of analysis. So the current situation was that they had 12 manual machines spread across the lab. And uh, we said, okay, machine tending is an easy application from robots. I mean, you have a rack in somewhere, you place it in the same place, you can pick the tubes, load it, and, and spin it. And we did that. So now we have a Yumi robot in the hospital doing this, which is fantastic on its own. But the most important thing is that we analyze the process. And now instead of having 12 machines, we have one with a robot. Because the fact that you put the robot is also driving along the let's say industrial process thinking into hospital. So with that, we, we can do these things. But this is a tiny example now we are doing much more advanced things. For example, robots automating biotech process. We are helping accelerate the COVID testing in many places. So we have robots testing COVID in Singapore. In Singapore, 75% of the patients inbound to Singapore are tested by ABV robots. The same in Taiwan. And now in U.S., and this is coming soon, our robots will be helping accelerate testing of the effectiveness of the vaccine. So now we have vaccination, but we have the threat of new variants and how that goes. The robots will help uh, also accelerate that. The robots are helping to develop cancer treatments faster because we can speed up R&D dramatically. So there's a lot in laboratory automation, Peter.
0: So Mark, I want to double click on that a little bit. When you say in Korea, you said Singapore... Maybe some other places. 75% yes. of the COVID testing is done with robots. Yes. Yes. What should I envision? What, what does it mean for a robot to do such a test? What does it do?
1: Yeah, there are some videos in YouTube. The robots basically, I mean, you, you have the, the samples that come in tubes. So the robots are picking the tubes, are opening them, are extracting the sample, are putting the sample into the analyzers, or well, in into some plates that hold a number of samples that go into the analyzer, then we're unloading the analyzers, we're taking the sample, putting them into the right place, scanning the barcode, registering it, and sorting them to the next step of the process. So the robots are basically making the linkage of all the manual and non-manual processes, making that faster and robust through robots.
0: That's so interesting, because I think when most people think about COVID tests, they would think about, oh, somebody's stuffing something up my nose kind of thing. But so yeah. that the robot is is not like in your in your face. The robot is behind no. the scenes doing all the yes. laboratory work to yeah. actually return the result of the test.
1: Exactly. That's why uh, you can get the result in less than 24 hours and cope with this big amount of testing.
0: Similarly for you said Testing the effectiveness of the different the vaccine, vaccine against different strains. Can you elaborate a bit on you know, what, what should we envision when thinking about that?
1: Once again, I mean, you have now people being vaccinated, and there is a concern how effective over time the vaccines will be. But there's also the threat about the new variants. So uh, the medical community and the pharmaceutical community are developing ways to check that through some, I mean, design viruses. But that means that you need to put some blood sample against those viruses and see what the effect is. So that again is, is a process that can, is of course, perform manual in a lab when in the development phase. But if you really want to make it effective, you need to scale that up. And the only way to, well, and the way to scale that up is through automation. So the flexibility that the robots have provided to uh, have enabled these people I'll put you an example manually they were doing 20 tests per day. Now they're going to do 1,200 tests day.
0: Wow, that's amazing. When you think about the the healthcare robots that are doing COVID testing, checking the effectiveness of the vaccine, but also directly helping in the Texas Medical Center, I got to imagine what you just told us about are just just examples of how it's getting started. What's your vision for this? Where do you see this end up?
1: I I really share a vision about how we can impact hospitals. The first thing is really an end-to-end optimization of the value chain. If you look at the hospital, besides the, the most important thing, which is the direct care of the, of the people uh, and, and the treatment. The rest behind that is a macro fulfillment center. And some people will kill me to make it such cold. But in the end, when the doctors and the nurses determine that something some treatment has to be given to the patient, what's behind is a fulfillment center. So you have a warehouse with the incoming drugs. You have some need to be refrigerated. Some other need to be compounded and prepared and have a short life time and so on and then you need to make that get to the patient through the lab so it's a complete loop of getting data through the labs uh, making the diagnosis defining the treatment and making the treatment go to the patient so all that uh, chain is really if you would come there with a again industrial glasses that process is broken it's because everything has been designed around the patient again for the good reason it should stay like that but there are so many things that can be optimized. Now, again, the robots physically will be automating the warehouses. The robots are already today preparing some drugs in the hospital. That is called pharmaceutical compounding, in vitro compounding. But the robots, mobile robots are delivering already the medicines or, or the meals and get back the line into the laundry. So you you are automating all the material flow inside the hospital. So that's a big thing where ho- robots will help. I would say first in the short term, going forward, the robots will get also into medical assistance. So for example, robots in rehabilitation, there's going to be a shortage of physiotherapists, people that, because also these things are dynamic over time. If you have a a disease that is, I mean, getting worse, the physiotherapist and your pain level, for example, increases every day that physiotherapist needs to apply a different force and it's a different patient is a different kinematics and a different dynamics if you allow me to use these words. But in the end, what you need from the physiotherapist is their knowledge to decide what is the motion you need to do. But once it's decided for that day, a robot could take over. So rehabilitation is is a big thing that will happen. Then uh, assistant to surgeons, assistants to doctor, uh, robots bringing the tools, robots checking the, some of the things surrounding the the key things that will be the next step after we settle the operational part.
0: That's amazing, Mark. When I think about this, I mean, first of all, the analogy you made of, you know, how much of what happens in a hospital is, is so similar to what's happening in a warehouse. So much flow of materials, and we know we kind of know how to automate a lot of the warehouse flows. So it's it's an amazing um, insight to to bring that to bear there. I am really curious about that next step also, though, which is let, let's say a robot actually helps a doctor. Like I could imagine some things robots are you know, maybe not as good at, but other things robots are really good at. Like robots have extremely steady hands, if, if we can call it that. They're not really hands, but, yeah. you know, a robot can keep still uh, really, really well. Do you have any thoughts on kind of complementarity of kind of the, the strengths you, you'd imagine robots would bring to these yeah. kind of things?
1: As I said, I mean, surgical robots are a reality. I mean, and they're going to grow a lot. I mean, there, there's a, I mean, the big player, the, uh, the Da Vinci, famous Da Vinci robot, there, there are many newcomers uh, that will, will are coming to the market. Why is that? Because of what you said. I mean, the biggest knowledge of a surgeon is about the anatomy and what it needs to do. But in the past also it was to be how how steady his or her hand was. But this is something that now a robot can do better. So the, the the surgeons are really concentrating in some specific uh, surgeries, of course, not all of them, in really bringing the knowledge of what has to be done and not having to worry about if they have a bad day with their hand or not. So that is amazing. Uh, but that is very specific. What robots are generally good at, as you say, as I mean, repetitive motion, consistent motion, okay? So anything in these uh, environments that requires, I mean, repetitive material handling, machine tending, handling of goods. That is something robots could do. Now, the special thing though, is that part of the hospitals, we can still make them, I mean, structured environments, some other parts will never make them structure. And then once again, where we're going to need AI, because maybe in a lab, you can design the water bench. So you're locating the things always in the same place. But if you're going to be in, 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 a, in a patient room, I mean, you cannot tell the family, you need to leave the, the pills here and there, the, the robot will need to see them and grasp them. Okay. So if we really look at the whole picture of, of robots supporting end to end Uh, AI also will play an important role in in certain applications.
0: Looks like we have some uh, exciting opportunities ahead there. The
1: list doesn't finish, Peter.
0: So Mark, I love the stories on robots starting to make their way out of factories and into warehouses, restaurants, medical centers. It's just fascinating what's becoming possible. As I understand it, the stories you, you told us are about things that are happening today. These things are happening today. Now, I'm really curious about what you think is going to happen in the next 5, 10, 20 years. What do you foresee robots will be doing?
1: Well, I I think uh, robots will help in, in many more segments and places, basically powered by a number of technologies that are running exponential. Of course, AI and visual perception is one of them. Take, for example, agriculture. There's, like I said, in healthcare, there's a tremendous shortage at the corner. In agriculture, it's the same. We're truly risking not to have food. In UK, one out of three farmers is, is above 65 years old. Can you imagine that? So no yeah. farmers in the horizon. So there's something urgently needed to do about. But I mean, the challenge to go outdoors and pick apples from a tree, it requires mobility, it requires vision, it requires grasping, it requires connectivity. I think the building blocks are there and there's a number of startups really doing great jobs there. So I can foresee that in five years, the next big thing is going to be robots in agriculture, weeding, seeding and harvesting, also enabling urban farming, for example, all in all to gain productivity, save water, have better food at better prices. The things that uh, have happened in automotive may happen also in, in the in this food revolution. It's still in food, I mean there's huge things in food processing that are, and COVID highlighted them, that are very, very tough and risky in in, in butcheries and so on cutting process, deboning process, that also is, it requires a lot of, uh, it's a very comp- complex process that will probably also be enabled. And, uh, and if you go to the other extreme, when you're thinking about more uh, service robots, robots really, now we see Spot from Boston Dynamics, again, helping to work around uh, civil works construction to inspect, for example, robots doing inspection, robots doing surveillance, Robots, I mean, mobile manipulators like the mobile Yumi, we we showcase a concept at Houston, uh, the medical center, will be around us, okay? Uh, Guiding us in in places, helping us find our way in a museum. I mean, I, I can foresee that robots will finally come into unstructured environments. And this will happen through the visual perception part. Through more advanced locomotion and mobility, all that put together will enable a lot of new opportunities uh, for robots to support.
0: I personally couldn't agree more, Mark. I think think the the whole AI wave that's happening right now is is really going to open up a lot of these opportunities that used to be just impractical to be accessible to robots, but now all of a sudden, if they can understand what's around them, react to it. One big one that's also on my mind, and I'm curious about your thoughts, is recycling. But this is already happening. In U.S., for
1: example, there's a, a great company called uh, NRT, National Recycling Technologies. They are sorting trash with our robots, with our uh, spider robots in this case, because it has to be very fast. They're not the only ones. I mean, there are many companies now that are sorting trash, different types, plast- separating plastic separating uh, ferrous materials, using robots. So that is a reality. But I'll tell you even more because this is at the beginning. I think that recycling is the future mining in the future. Mining will be about going into waste uh, and recycling things because some things basically we will run out unless we go to Mars and robots are already there before us, by the way. So um, I, I think uh, robots will play a huge role in the in the future commodity market because we'll go from mines to recycling.
0: That's so interesting. What, thinking of the what currently we consider our our waste dumps is going to be our future mines to dig out all the valuables that we're just. Yeah. failing to, to recycle today. You mentioned Mars. Any thoughts on putting an ABB robot on Mars? <laughs> well, yes. I mean,
1: of course. I mean, our Yumi robot is super light and it has already caught the attention of some of the space agencies. I cannot disclose more, but definitely. And some of our team members have uh, worked in, for example, robotic arms In the International uh, Space Station, Jordi Artigas, that is working very close with you, he was working in DLR in Germany. So robots, of course, are are today already a a very important part of uh, space missions. And I think that they will be fundamental for uh, mankind to really conquer Moon, conquer Mars, because in those places, the things that on Earth are meaningful, there they will be amplified because the risk and the conditions will be much more uh, difficult. So it would make probably a lot of sense to have robots risking their gearboxes instead of us doing a number of things.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, just recently, Elon Musk said we might not make it back alive. Anybody who goes to Mars. So, I mean, it seems nice <laughs> to be able to send some robots for now. Mark, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Learned so much. Thank you so much for, for making the time.
1: Thanks to you, Peter. It's, it's also exciting to, to talk with you as always. I really follow your po- podcast. I, I think they're very pedagogic and illustrative for everyone that really wants to learn about AI
0: and the future of technology. Well, and we just wrapped one more today. I hope people will enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Now, we covered a lot of ground with Mark in this episode. But I'd say we've still barely scratched the surface of all the changes AI will bring to robotic automation. So in next week's episode, we will focus on exactly that. The big changes AI is about to bring, really, has already started to bring to robotic automation. I will be joined by a very special guest, Peter Chen, who I know very well, of course. He's one of my co-founders at Covariant. Peter and I will discuss how AI is primed to change the world of robotic automation. As ever, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, write us a review, and share our episodes on social media. Thanks so much for listening.